Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. And the issue that uh, everybody's talking about, literally everyone is talking about, with a lot of emotion, a lot of passion, and with for many people it stirs up a lot of unpleasant memories. Some of the memories are very recent, others not so much, but they're still very real. And that's the issue of sexual harassment, sexual assault in the workplace. More media celebrities declared sexual harassers and are fired. Matt Lauer is the most famous of the recent, of the most recent. Nobody knew what a, what a pig he was, or is alleged to have been, with the sex toys and the button that locked the office door from, from his desk. And we have the uh, audio track ready. Go ahead and play it. What did he say? Bend over. It's uh, keep on bending over. It's a nice view. Matt Lauer. And now ABC says, or NBC. I'm sorry, NBC is investigating whether there were problems with Lauer previously. No, no, no. Nobody would have known. So. Somebody, somebody somewhere must have said something. And where's this all going? And then there's also the question whether or not it's going to be a situation where maybe a man who is completely innocent of an accusation finds his life utterly and totally disturbed. So it's, um, it's important to talk about, important to, uh, to consider, and uh, we'll be taking your calls on the issue in a, in a couple of minutes. But first we have... With us, Professor Jane Kirtley. She's a professor of media, ethics, and the law at the University of Minnesota. She also does a lot of work with Canadian broadcast organizations. And she's been very kind uh, with her time to us over the years. Jane, thank you so much uh, for, for your time today. And where, from your perspective, does this discussion begin? Does it begin with the big names? Does it begin somewhere else? Quite honestly, I think it all began um, with the... Um, speculation about Donald Trump when he was still a candidate. And I think that um, the reaction to that uh, has kind of coalesced into a variety of women um, and some men who now feel that they are more than justified in coming forward to um, accuse and to assert that they have been the victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And as you mentioned, uh, some of these are, you know, go back many years. Some of them are quite recent. And I think there's been a very strong reaction, uh, not only by those who allege that they've been victims, but by others as well. It's been, I think, a time for uh, a lot of reflection and a lot of reaction. And I have, you know, I, I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, so our biggest issue here right now involves two Minnesota celebrities, Garrison Keillor and uh, Senator Al Franken. And I can think it's fair to say that the public reaction is pretty divided um, because both are highly regarded here in the state. And I think uh, some of them, some people feel that the reaction has been swift and appropriate and others think that it is disproportionate. Um, I think it's very good that uh, victims feel that they can come forward. I mean, I'm old enough to remember times when 
situation like this arose and women were either not believed or their thoughts and comments and expressions were just brushed off. And so I think it's good that we're reexamining all of this right now, but I do worry about the potential rush to judgment. Uh, not in any of these specific cases, because we really don't know enough detail at this point, but looking down the road, um, I, don't, I don't mean to shed a lot of tears for true uh, you know, people that are truly abusers, but I, I do think that the question of what's the line of acceptable behavior is going to be a little harder to define than some people might suggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned Al, Al Franken. Someone also stepped forward to accuse him of of being a sexual harasser. Yes. When it comes to someone in, in, a, in, a, in a public office, uh, like Mr. Franken is as a senator, there are people who say he should... Uh, he should resign. Uh, that has come from Republicans and Democrats. And there are people who say that he should have an opportunity to, to, um, to attend uh, modif- behavior modification classes. And, and, and when I look at somebody like Al Franken or, or somebody who has a position of some significant, really significant trust, if you do that and if you admit to it, you have to be gone. Is that overreaction? I don't think it's an overreaction. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed that Al Franken has basically um, kind of doubled back and said, I want to go through an ethics committee hearing. I, I am hard-pressed to see how that's going to really benefit anyone, including him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is something that his constituents should have an opportunity to weigh in on, and I don't really know, you know how how that's been playing out in terms of what kind of response he's getting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John Conyers is another Democrat, uh, and there are, have been a couple of others that accusations have been made. And obviously they vary in terms of, uh, I guess, their severity. But if the idea is zero tolerance, then I think if that's the idea, then probably all of these people have to go. But the Republicans, I think, should bear in mind that that would also mean that somebody like Roy Moore, who is going to be standing for election to the Senate in just a a few days, uh, needs to be examined closely, too. And that's why I think the Republicans aren't quite sure how to deal with this. And I'm sure you know there have been noises about even if he is elected that they will expel him. So this is a a politically charged issue that, that I wish it were not because I don't see it as a Democratic-Republican divide. It has to do with <laughs> decent conduct. Yes, it does. And one would hope that no matter which side you are on, that you would agree that that... Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you, whether you like somebody on television or like somebody on radio, if they're guilty of uh, sexual harassment or, or worse, sexual assault. I don't know if you... Well, I, I, qualify one against the other. If, you're, if, you, if you admit that you're guilty, then you have to go. And you can't say, I'm sorry, but I like my job. You can't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way because it was on the job in these cases that you behaved in, a, in, a, in an unacceptable and morally slovenly manner. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So many of the most popular names, some of the very popular people or men now have been uh, either confessed or are fighting back and saying, no, I didn't do it. I'm not, I'm not guilty of that. And, and as uh, our guest Jane Kirtley, professor of media ethics and the law at the University of Minnesota, said we have to be careful about accusations that are made. Also, there's, there's, there's this aspect to it, Jane, and uh, you know this, Pamela Anderson, uh, 
um, said that it was common knowledge, quote, that certain producers or certain people in Hollywood are people to avoid privately. You know what you get into if you go to a hotel room alone with them. So she's putting some responsibility on women to not put themselves into that kind of situation. Is that fair? And I'm curious, what would your students say about that? You know, that's a great question, because I think my generation of students now have have a much more limited tolerance for what they would regard as invasion of their space or their person than perhaps was the case with my generation or older people who, you know, maybe thought this was just part of the job and you just had to put up with it. Um, so, I mean, I think they would argue that, um, you know, uh, your own sense of kind of personal responsibility and taking responsibility for your own safety, that's an appropriate thing to factor in. But it still, of course, does not excuse people that are in positions of power taking advantage of their support. No, no, no. Things like that. So, I mean, I, again, I think it's, it, there's a much a greater sense of empowerment I see among my students, but that still wouldn't excuse the kinds of things we're hearing about. Okay. Does it surprise you, as a media ethics professor and as, as a woman who's a consumer of media, when you see Matt Lauer's name, when you see Charlie Rose's name, is it a surprise or should we never be surprised at anybody's name we see? Well, I'll be honest and say I'm not particularly surprised. I mean, these individuals, and I don't just mean these two in particular, because we can include Bill O'Reilly, we can include right. many. Yeah. You know, they get paid astronomical sums of money. They have huge power within their industry and within their particular employer. And I think it is probably understandable, although still not excusable, that they really believe that the rules just don't apply to them. Um, you know, power gives them the ability to, to cross these lines of what are acceptable behavior. I mean, there's a reason this is being done behind closed doors, as it's being alleged, because or at a, a private home out on Long Island or something, because on some level they know that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that is so troubling about this is that when they sit, set themselves up as arbiters of other people's behavior, I mean, just taking an example... Matt Lauer gave Hillary Clinton a very hard time during the uh, election campaign. And now people are going back and looking at that and saying, well, you know, is this sign of, of a much deeper misogyny than, than we realized? And I raise that not to determine the truth or the falsity of it, but just to say that that underscores the ethical problem that journalists always have, which is to maintain credibility. And if you're a hypocrite, then how can you be an effective journalist? And, and that. That's the problem I see here. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Clintons, I'm surprised that Bill Clinton's name just seems to be uh, kept to the margins. He's, he has so many issues and so many problems and so much, so much doubt about what, he's, uh, what he says, about what he's done or not done. Anyway, Jane, thank you so much. It's always great speaking with you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bill Morneau our Minister of Finance federally, who accused small business owners of cheating on paying on taxes they should have paid. This is the man who chopped the TFSAs in half, angering the middle class that the liberals are so devoted to. The Minister of Finance, who's now facing questions about his own ethics, uh, and there was his response to the point that was brought up in Parliament. Did Mr. Morneau share news of impending legislation 
with his dad allowing the elder Morneau to sell 200,000 shares and avoid a hit when share value decreased following federal legislation introduction. So, and of course, the uh, ethics commissioner wants to talk to him again. She fined him 200 bucks already. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. Here's the maximum fine that I can levy on a print or a federal minister who's a multi, 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 multi millionaire, and it's 200 bucks. Anyway, it's the idea of being fined as being uh, an unethical or an, uh, an ethically challenged miscreant within the federal cabinet. So is it time for Mr. Morneau to hit the road, Jack, and, uh, and, and leave and get out? Now, remember, we're told that our economy is doing well. We know that for the first time, uh, it's less than 6% unemployment, first time since 2006, less than uh, 6% unemployment in this country. And again, I keep getting emails saying, you know, you go after the liberals all the time. You go after Morneau all the time. You go to Trudeau all the time. Well, somebody has to. Uh, and, and our economy is doing well. So why don't you leave them alone? I don't know. It's a character flaw. Uh, Catherine Swift, Catherine Swift, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Canada's number one employers, the small and medium-sized businesses in this country. She's an economist, and she sat on the board of the C.D. Howe Institute with uh, Mr. Morneau for several years, but the most important time of her life is Saturday afternoons at 4.30 Eastern. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And if you don't know what Saturday afternoon at 4.30 Eastern is, you'll have to find out. Because we ain't telling you right now. So how much trouble, how much trouble should Bill Morneau be in, and how much trouble is he in, Catherine? Well, I think, I think this latest incident with the share selling and his father and stuff, if it had happened all by itself, I imagine it, there would have been a little kerfuffle probably. But I think the key is it's cumulative here. It just seems... Every time the last, you know, questionable deed dies down a bit, another one crops up. And, and what, what has been really telling to me as well is, even apart from the whole, all of these issues around Bill Morneau, which are not unimportant at all, and I think have damaged him to the point, to an irreparable point, personally, uh, but more important, almost more important, at least as important to me, is how this government's reacted to it. And they've been immensely lucky. They've been lucky with the economy. And, yeah, I mean, just because the economy's going well, economies often go well with bad governments and go poorly with good governments because there's a bazillion factors that affect them, and, you know, most of which are out of any government's control. Right now, the U.S. is doing well. When the U.S. does well, we do well. You know, that's probably one of the main factors. Oil prices are coming back anyway, et cetera, et cetera. But that being said, yeah, the economy on, on many fronts is doing well, although, as, as we discussed yesterday, Roy, there are also some storm clouds on the horizon. But I think the way the government has dealt with this crisis, and it really, it's kind of their first one. They've gotten a free ride, certainly from most of the media, present company excluded, of course, but most of the media has given them an amazingly uh, free ride. They've been generally, we've been lucky, we, we you know, we're, we're geographically so far apart from trouble spots in the world that we haven't had some of the crises some European countries and whatnot have faced. Um, and, and on and on. The economy has hummed along, you know, for a whole bunch of different reasons. What I really worry about, because this is a government that by and large is pretty inexperienced, and I think the Morno uh, tale was, was very telling because, you know, here, here's somebody that probably never in his life 
has faced adversity of any significant kind at all. And when he does, and this isn't, boy, this, you know, you could face a lot worse adversity than what's going on in the House of Commons right now. But when he does, he acts condescending, he acts uh, immensely entitled, he's quite insulting. And of course, he's, he's clearly feeling extremely put upon, <laughs> which just tells me, come on, buddy, you know, this is, this is the House of Commons, it happens all the time. And, and I think, too, does anyone think for a nanosecond if the tables were turned and this was a conservative finance minister that the liberals would be saying, oh, this is okay, we'll take a pass? No, I mean, clearly, the, the man doesn't understand how the, how the game is, well, I shouldn't call it a game, but metaphorically, it is a game. right? It's a blood sport. He doesn't, he, yeah, exactly. He doesn't know how, how it's played, and he doesn't know how to respond, or he doesn't, he won't, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the option there is. But... People are going to ask questions, and he has to understand this. If four days after or four days before he introduces legislation that uh, thumps the the firm that he and his dad own, uh, four days before that legislation is introduced, his father sells for two hundred thousand shares. People are going to ask questions. They want to say they want to know: Is that coincidence? What happened? He talked to him. It's a natural thing to do to ask, and nobody's accusing. Uh, some may be, but, uh, the, you know, here we're asking. He's got to be ready for that. What he also needs to do is understand that you can't have a situation where his company owns a villa in France, and uh, it's him and his wife and a numbered company in, in, in France. Well, who owns the numbered company? He does. He, he does he, just not, does he just not? Does he just not know? Don't they have any advisors in that government? Well, 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 they do. But and this is another interesting point of speculation. As we know, most of their key advisors advised Dalton McGinty and then Kathleen. Well, Lynn that's for a right. While. That's right. And and there's been a lot of speculation among sort of political, you know, pundits or whatever, that um, now they're now they're playing in the big stage. Now they're playing in the country. Ontario has a well-deserved reputation for being amazingly complacent. And now they're getting some opposition, and again, they don't know how to cope with it. But it gets back to that cumulative thing, Roy, when you talk about you know, the various issues. This is a finance minister who very, very definitely implied that small biz- a lot of small businesses were cheats, yep. and they needed to be taxed more, and yep. on and on and on. Yep. And now he, he does look like a hypocrite at a minimum, and of course he's still not answering questions. I think a lot of this would have died down if he had have just answered the questions in a really neutral way, not been condescending, not said things. I mean, if you've watched any of question period, he'll say things to the opposition like, I assume you can read, or you clearly don't understand how stock markets work. You know, these kinds of comments, does he not realize he's just digging a deeper hole for yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't want to insult anybody, but it's that private school arrogance. Well, well, there's definitely, oh, listen, this arrogance, all governments have an arrogance, so, you know, I'm certainly not going to say some are exempt, but this particular one, boy, it's pervasive, and the vast majority of them are inexperienced politicians right up to the top. They're people that, again, in their lives, haven't had a lot of adversity, if any, and, um, and they're reacting accordingly. Well, I'm just and- thinking of Morneau having an issue that he needs to resolve. He has a question that he needs an answer to. Who's he going to go to in that in that in that government? Well, he's going he's yeah. going to go to Trudeau. Yeah. And, and how much how much relevant and useful advice is he going to get from him? Well, that's that's a very good point. But uh, another consideration, though, and, and this, like I say, is my big worry. What if we faced a real crisis? 
I would really worry about how this gang would handle it and what kind of peril the mm-hmm. country would be in. If we faced a true, a real economic meltdown, some really difficult geopolitical thing, which, of course, as we know, given the state of the world right now, is immensely possible. Right. And, and uh, th- this is the thing that I find very, very problematic, because I don't think this gang would know the first thing what to do. But you have to remember, just two weeks ago, the prime minister and the party graded themselves. In their performance. <laughs> and you and I have nothing to worry about, Catherine, because yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful. They're great. That's part of that arrogance thing, Roy. <laughs> they are legends in their own minds. <laughs> You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back with Catherine Swift, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, economist, and uh, served on the board of the C.D. Howe Institute with Bill Morneau on a number of, for a number of years. When you served with Bill Morneau on the C.D. Howe board, Catherine, would you have said, based on what you observed, that he would have what is needed to become the finance minister of the country? Well, I I actually would have, to be honest with you. I mean, he was running a company. Granted, it was a company that his father founded and on and on and on. Certainly had a pretty decent handle on issues like pensions and whatnot, which naturally was was the nature of the business. What was kind of interesting to me, though, was that his views prior to politics were very, very different. For example, he talked about reducing the TFSA in half and and, uh, upping the CPP uh, and forcing employers and employees to pay more into that very poor retirement system that is the CPP. Those were diametrically opposed to views that he expressed in a book he wrote to entering politics. So that was interesting to me that his, a lot of his views changed 180 degrees. But I guess that happens. Politics is a particular world. But no, I would have thought he did. He, I, I'll never forget the last debate I had with him, because <laughs> we used to argue about stuff. I was definitely of, of a different mindset. And um, he was talking about, at the time, the Harper government doing a lot of advertising. You may recall it, uh, spending a lot of money advertising the uh, Canada's economic uh, you know, plan and all that kind of jazz. And, and I said, yeah, I agree with you. I think that he's spending too much money, too. But how about Kathleen Wynne spending all that money? Well, that was okay, you know. So, <laughs> so the partisan uh, disease, I guess, was setting in even at that time. But no, I, I frankly would have thought he would have had the ability to do it. And, and I, can't, I can't say, even though, yes, he, he clearly came across as a guy that had had a pretty easy life. I, I can't. The arrogance part is is was something I frankly didn't uh, didn't see until he got in the House of Commons and and uh, was entering into debates. Because, like I say, I don't think it's helping his cause any. He looks defensive yeah, he and does. kind of snippy. He does. <laughs> he does. And when he's sitting beside Trudeau and he looks up at Trudeau, it's just almost it's almost too um, too help me. Um, Help me, please. Look, oh, you know, yeah, and that's a that's not a great place to look for help. No, you know? no, I mean, well, of course, Trudeau did shove him out of the way at a press conference. Yes, uh, he did, as you may recall, yep. back when the small yep. business yep. stuff was exactly. imploding. Like he should shove anybody out of the way. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of laughable, really. But it is. But it's, it is a worry. I mean, yep. I think that as a Canadian, it concerns me because I think we have a gang here that is going to have a lot of trouble when the inevitable true crisis does hit. Yeah. But you and I are just a couple of conservatives, and what the hell do we know? What do we know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Roy. Great talking to you always. Catherine Swift, former CEO, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, an economist, and uh, she's a remarkable woman. You're listening.
listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific, the B.C. Court of Appeal will announce its decision in the Equitas lawsuit. And joining us is Mark Birchall. He's the president of the Equitas Society. Mark, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you, Roy. You know, you've always been a great supporter of uh, our lawsuit and uh, veterans across the country, so uh, we're always pleased to be on your show. Well, thank you, and, and you deserve you deserve so much more than you do get, even from reluctant governments, and now we have successive governments who are saying they don't have a social contract with you. Um, what is the lawsuit specifically asking for, Mark? The, <clears throat> the lawsuit... Uh, is asking for acknowledgement that the new veterans charter doesn't uh, fulfill the needs of of the um, the new generation of veterans, and it asks for reinstatement of the lifelong pensions that existed for veterans wounded prior to the introduction of the new veterans charter in 2006. And what is the government's argument against your position, against against Equitas' position? Well, the government uh, lawyers claimed in court that the new veteran or that the uh, charter doesn't apply to veterans; that there is no social covenant with veterans; the honor of the crown doesn't apply, and that they have no duty of care to veterans. Basically, they can do whatever they want with veterans. And then, so the next question we have to ask ourselves, why would any federal government of Canada take such a callous position toward the men and the women of the country who wear the uniform and put themselves directly in the line of fire to protect the people who are making uh, this kind of decision so they can make relevant decisions for us? Why would any government do this? Well, that's the question that veterans across the country are asking. I mean... You know, these, these uh, <clears throat> veterans, they, we send them to foreign hostile lands where they witness horrors and atrocities that would bend the sanity of any civilized person. Then they return home to an indifferent population where each of us is part of the problem if we don't make it our business to be part of the solution. And the governments, uh, and it's not just the liberal government, it was the conservative government before this. Right. Um, for some reason, have failed. They do. They do all kinds of things, which simply, you know, they add layer upon layer of benefits uh, through their successive governments, and all that does is complicate the uh, the whole benefit package and make it almost impossible for uh, veterans to navigate their way through the 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 uh, the veteran affairs. Yeah, it's like a, it's like an insane Rubik's cube. If you try to figure out what uh, what's going on and what the veterans have to go through, uh, now if if you if you're successful with the court of appeal tomorrow, probably the Supreme Court gets will will get it next. Or if that's, you that's correct because what uh, what you see what happened is is that the originally the Supreme Court said that there was a case to be made and was allowing it to proceed to trial and and uh, the. Uh, government appealed that, uh, and incidentally, later they tried to withdraw that appeal, and the court wouldn't let them. And um, so, so when we win, or if if uh, the uh, decision comes in our favor tomorrow, it allows us to move forward with the case. Yeah. So, if ultimately Equitas proves successful, as it never should have been a question, but. If, if after all this time, the courts decide, yes, the government's wrong, 
they do have a social contract, a social covenant with the men and the women of the military. What would it mean to um, a, a recent veteran who is unable to go on with his or her life as they were, as they did before they were wounded or injured? What would it mean to that person? Well, what if at the end of the line of the court case, the uh, or somewhere in between, the government reinstates lifelong pensions. What it means is that veterans will have uh, disabled veterans will have the security of knowing that they have the financial support to on to build uh, that forms a base on which they can build the rest of their lives. So right now, for example, all of the benefits that they get can be withdrawn at any time. If it's a pension, they, uh, then what, they can't be withdrawn, it can't be clawed back if they have other income, which, by the way, the way it exists right now, because there's clawbacks, there's no incentive for them to go out and make another income. But if they have the pension, then they, it's locked in, they know they can, they, they can make additional income over and above that, and it's something that they could actually take to a bank and, and uh, be ha- use as a guaranteed income if they need to apply for a, a mortgage, for example. Yeah. It's the very least that a country is obliged to do for its wounded men and women of the military it's the very, the very least that the country is obliged to do is to take care of the men and the women who put on the uniform and take the greatest, greatest possible personal risks, and the risk extends to their families and to, and to their friends. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Wish you all the very best with that decision tomorrow. I'll be eagerly waiting to find out what it is. Well, thank you, Roy, and as I said, we always appreciate the support that you have always given us, and we'll make sure that you know the outcome tomorrow, and uh, we'll be available to make comment on it if, uh, if you'd like to. All right, Mark. Thanks so very much. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Jordan Peterson joins me on The Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. Psychology professor at the University of Toronto. His book, which comes out in uh, January next month, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. And he was our guest last Saturday. Uh, Dr. Peterson, it's good to have you with us. Hi, Roy. Good to be here. I have to read you an email that I just received. And, and, to, and, to, and to lead off, I don't know if you heard the story, but it's been empirically proven now that the dogs are smarter than cats. So, so I get this email. Great show, Roy. Dogs may be very smart. I love them. But cats are more intuitive. I love them, too. And I love Dr. Peterson for, for his very strong backbone and his beautiful mind. And that's from Lynn, one of our listeners. So I wanted to share that with you. Well, thank you. Should be in the same category as lovable cats and dogs. Well, it's, it's better than a lot of other categories. It, it certainly is. <laughs> why? Well, let me ask you the same question I asked you. Started off with uh, last Saturday, and that is, why are you so controversial? Uh, what is it that makes Dr. Jordan Peterson such a controversial figure in this country now? Well, it's a good question. You know, um, I I made a couple of videos last year my opposition to Bill C-16. I said that it promoted compelled speech and that the surrounding policies built a social constructionist view of gender into the law, which is a false view, and it did. It is now built into the law. And I just reviewed that video this week you know, in the aftermath of everything that's happened at Wilfrid Laurier University to see if I said anything in it that should justify the, all the 
epithets, let's say, that have been hurled my way. Um, but I thought I reviewed it. You know, I would have edited it a bit differently if I would have done it now. But as far as I can tell, I was perfectly reasonable in that video, and it's up for everybody here on, on YouTube. So I think what's happened is that because I stood up against the radical left in the universities, they've done, there has been an attempt to tar me with every epithet that might be associated with the full political spectrum to the right of the radical left. And that would go all the way from, you know, moderate left to Nazi. And, well... I mean, I've heard for them. I guess I, I've heard all, all I can figure out. I've heard all those descriptors about you. Yep, all of them, and some of them from the same person. Um, but there's always the group of people who will say, "But jo- Jordan Peterson is protecting and supporting freedom of expression." And I spoke yesterday with David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, who writes op-ed pieces for the Globe and Mail, and we were talking about an op-ed piece that he wrote in 2015, which. David suggests that the hate speech uh, aspect of, of, of freedom of expression, hate speech law, is just a cobbling together of, of a lot of uh, compromises. And, and it was a, I thought it was a brilliantly written piece. But why is freedom of expression such a... But, well, let, let me back this up. Would you tell everybody, please, what are the fundamentals of C-16 and why do you oppose them? Well, the bill purports to add gender expression and gender identity to the protected categories under Canadian human rights legislation. And in principle, there's, and that, you know, and also to make violations of those rights, uh, what would you call it, pursuable under the hate speech provisions, hate crime provisions uh, of the criminal code. And that's, that's part of what's wrong with the bill as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not very happy with the whole idea of hate speech and not even that happy about the idea of hate crime, because the problem isn't that there is no hate speech, because obviously there is, and that there are no hate crimes, because obviously there are. The problem is who gets to decide what constitutes a hate, hate speech in particular. I think that's a very dangerous place for people to go, to start banning what they consider hate speech. Yeah. And, but worse than that, and, and far worse than that, I think, is the fact that the policies surrounding Bill C-16 that were put together by the Ontario Human Rights Code and that the federal government stated very clearly uh, would guide the interpretation of Bill C-16 are absolutely appalling. They, if you go to the Ontario Human Rights Commission website, um, you can read them for yourself. They, they're unbelievably overreaching, and they do mandate the use of, of uh, preferred pronouns, so to speak, and that isn't that means that that's an uh, example of compelled speech, which we've never had compelled speech in Canada before, and in, in most Western countries. And so it's a line that shouldn't have been crossed. And, but worse than that is the presupposition that's built into the policies that biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, which is your clothing and your style, basically, and sexual preference or proclivity, are independent phenomena, and they're not. That's false. And so I pointed that out last year, and you know, people, the people on the radical left were very unhappy with that. Could you find yourself in, in jail for what you're saying, in writing? Well, you know, there's debate about that. Imagine that I was hauled in front of the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, yeah. um, which is not, and I don't think that will happen because there's been too, many, too much uh, 
let publicity sent my way. I think I'm relatively safe from that now. But let's say that someone is hauled before the Social Justice Tribunal, the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, for failing, for misgendering someone or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're found guilty and they're required to pay a fine or to take a re-education course or whatever it is that the Human Rights Commission decides is necessary, and then they refuse to do it, um, then it gets transferred to the standard court system. And then if you don't abide by the rulings, then that's contempt of court and you go to jail. So it depends on how you look at it. You know, you know what I mean? The first response of the Ontario Human Rights Commission wouldn't be to throw you in jail. It would be to mandate some form of punishment, financial or educational, and then enforce that. But if that didn't work, if you continued with your objection, let's say, then the standard court system is the next part of the process. So it's not like it's narrowly defined, uh, no, you you can't, legislation isn't designed to put you in jail, but more broadly defined, that's certainly not only a possible end, but an end that's occurred with, uh, in similar ways with people. So uh, Jared Brown has a blog, lawyer Jared Brown has a blog, where he's outlined this sort of thing um, in, in quite a bit of detail. Well, there have been there are parts of the world where somebody has, uh, has, has spoken freely, uh, and they have found themselves in, in, in prison for a, a long, long period of time. Well, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with what happened at Wilfrid Laurier University last month. I think just about everybody. Yes, well, <laughs> probably. But, you know, she was accused by two faculty members, and, and worse, uh, an administrator hired for precisely that sort of purpose of breaking federal and provincial law, and violating the university's uh, code of conduct, and, you know, being transphobic. And now, of course, she's also being called racist, because she dared to stand up to her professor of color, or person of color professor, I think is the appropriate politically correct term. So the idea, which I put forth that last September, that the legislation would be interpreted in that manner, which was one of the things I was criticized for, turns out to be, well, exactly, at least in this instance, exactly correct. And then the issue is, well, is this an isolated incident? And <laughs> the answer to that is, I, if this was an isolated incident, why would there be people at the universities hired to do such things? Mm. What, I, what, I, what I really find interesting with the Lindsay Shepard uh, case and that, that whole situation is that they were very aggressive with her and, uh, and, and, and very condemning of her. And, but the moment the light was shone on the situation and it became public knowledge and the population reacted the way it did, what did they do? They apologized. So as long as there was not, uh, the public wasn't aware and there was not a public reaction condemning the university for the, the things they did and the positions they took, they, were, they felt quite morally and legally superior. Well, and, and, I, the and, the moment, and the moment the light was shone, shone on them, they, were, they apologized. Well, the, they sort of apologized. Well, sort know. of. The, yeah, the right. university said that it would, I think the university took the coward's way out. They said that they would hire a third-party investigation team, essentially, which 
strikes me as a complete abdication of responsibility. Well, didn't the I, professor didn't the professor apologize to her? Yes, the professor did as well. But yeah. again, I thought this apology was rather self-serving. I mean, he mm-hmm. also recommended himself as part as a, the, one of the people who could serve on the third-party committee that was looking. Yeah. So, see, Doctor Peterson, what I, what I still don't understand was what was wrong with what she did. With what she did, or, or what, 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 what? What was wrong with what she did, or was she what she was planning on doing? She's well, not. She's not a supporter of yours. What she did, what she did was show a video yeah. of someone of two people discussing the, the the potential use or refusal to use use personal pronouns. And then there's going to be a discussion. Preferred pronouns, and that in itself was regarded as tantamount to violence. By the by, the administrator because it denied the humanity of trans people. So you think about that. So it's yeah. she neutrally showed a video about two people discussing the the use of preferred pronouns, um, and that was sufficient for the university to bring the administrators aboard and and accuse her essentially of two crimp two. To, of, of breaking the law in two different ways, as well as the university code, and and uh, and also okay. as, man, as a manifestation of her bigotry. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Jordan Peterson, my guest, University of Toronto. His upcoming book next month, uh, published next month, Twelve Rules for Life: An Antidote to Chaos. Dr. Peterson, we have about three minutes. Uh, Bill C-16 was passed by a significant margin in Parliament, and then it was supported by the Senate, so it's law. And a person, I went back to my notes of last weekend, a person must be identified by a pronoun which he or she believes represents his or her preferred way to be addressed. So he or she must be replaced with whatever else, um, whatever the person wishes, and which to everyone else is a non-word, uh, a pronoun with which the other people have no familiarity, as I understand it. And if you fail to use the preferred pronoun to address someone who may be transgendered or non-gendered, you can be brought before the Ontario Human Rights Commission and found to be in violation of the accuser's human rights and freedom of expression. But what happens to your freedom of expression? Aren't you f- being forced by that legislation to say things that you don't believe? Well, you see, I, I had construed this as a manifestation in law of the kind of political correctness that has seized the universities. And you asked earlier why I'm so controversial, and the answer to that is, is because I, shed, I shone a light on this and on the underlying rationale for it. And the people who are busily pushing this agenda, and those are people who have completely taken over the humanities and the large part of the social sciences at universities, are not happy with the fact that I'm doing that, and they re- they're perfectly willing to throw whatever mud at me that they can manage to fling and hope that some of it sticks. But the truth of the matter is, as far as I can tell, that this law is dangerous in precisely the way I indicated, because it compels speech. It has very little to do with transgender people, as far as I'm concerned. It's the issue of compelled speech, and the issue of writing an improper view of human of human uh, existence into the law, and and also the 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 uh, and it's also the case that the universities are exactly as the Wilfrid Laurier incident revealed. 
people are going to say and have already said that that was an isolated incident and that the people involved misinterpreted the law. And first of all, it's not an isolated incident. It just happened to be caught on tape. And second, it's not a misinterpretation of the law. It's, it's an application of the law and its intent, as far as I'm concerned, exactly the way it was written. So Canadians should be aware that this isn't, an, this isn't fluke. It's exactly, it's exactly what you'd expect, given the nature of the law and the nature of what's happening, what's already happened on Canadian universities. And so, I would also say it's happening even faster in the public education system. Well, it's certainly something to be paid attention to. And I mentioned to you last weekend, that is something we talked about on this program, was in the U.S. just a few weeks ago, over 70% of Americans told pollsters political correctness had shut down public debate on issues where public debate is most needed. That is definitely something that needs to be paid attention to. Dr. Peterson, thank you for coming back on the program. Thanks, Roy. Good talking with you again. All right. I'm sure we'll do it again. All right. All the best. Yep. Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Inspector Stephen Glode of the RCMP. He's an active member of the force. And the inspector spoke with us about concerns that he has for his police force. He loves the RCMP. He loves working with the RCMP. He loves the people who work at the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police but he has very serious concerns about what is going on and what has been going on. And he's very open and very direct talking to us about um, what his concerns are. And uh, Inspector Stephen Glode, Inspector, good to have you back on the program. I must say to you that after, the, after we spoke for the first time, uh, I was concerned about what might happen as far as any disciplinary action uh, against you or to award you for coming on this program and, and, and outlining what your concerns for the RCMP are. Did anything like that happen? Well, first of all, thanks, Roy, for having me back. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that makes two of us. I was uh, pretty timid as to see what was going to happen. And, you know, much to my surprise, I actually got a call from uh, the commanding officer of this division who invited uh, me to come in and speak with him. And we agreed to do that on a, on a uh, if you will, at a third-party location. And we did. We followed through with that. Uh, at the time, he informed me that, uh, you know, there was no um, disciplinary actions going to come as a result of what went on until that point in time. And uh, we had a conversation. And this is, a, this is an interesting conversation, Roy, because this individual plays a key part into what had uh, encouraged me to come forward, in, a, in not in a positive way, but in a negative way. Now, we had that conversation. That was a good, that was a good first step. Because at our level, Roy, we should be able to talk, that's for sure. But the true test is going to be what comes of that talk. We can all talk a good game, but um, the fact is going to be what results are going to happen as a result of that conversation. And I can't tell you that right now um, because I haven't seen any results of that conversation. Um, but I'll definitely keep you posting that. Yeah, no, I... Go forward. Now, today may... <laughs> Maybe a whole new kettle of fish. I might find myself in deeper water today, but that's okay. Well, what, what was the response as well from the men and the women in the ranks to, uh, to your being on the program and, and speaking as openly as you did about what your concerns are? Oh, you know what? It was uh, n- nothing shy of... Uh, uh, it was a beautiful response from, 
rank and file from employees of all different categories because for me what that did is that um, that confirmed what we were saying here, what I was saying, that confirmed that this is happening all across the country. And I know every story has two sides, including my own. You're just hearing my side. Um, but so many employees wrote in, and Roy, I swear to God, if when I was reading them, I would think, this is exactly what's happening to me. I mean, it's very clear the system is broken, and it is broken straight across the country, and, and stuff is being done where I truly believe ethics and values uh, come into play. And everybody seems to be in the same boat. That should raise the flag up the pole to the federal government to say, hey, we need to pay attention to this. Now, in your in your letter uh, or your email to Mr. Goodell, yeah. the federal public safety minister, and it's December the 8th, next Friday, that you're going to demonstrate outside his office. Not tomorrow. I've been saying tomorrow. So, right. so I'm wrong about that. It's next Friday that it's going to happen. That's right. This coming Friday. That's correct. Yeah, December. yeah. So, in in your in your letter, you say uh, very clearly, um, I welcome anyone to attend who are willing to show peacefully for their family or friends serving in the RCMP, and even for those who do not wish to attend as caring citizens. Nonetheless, I will be there by myself. Um, oh, I, I'm not, here's here's what I want to read. Uh, let me assure you that I have no lawsuit against my organization, the RCMP. I have no lawyer or intention to sue the organization. In fact, I love the RCMP and what it stands for. And most of all, I love our employees who serve this country in many ways. Also, I want to see the force survive and prosper. The people are not listening to what is happening. This includes you, sir, Mr. Goodell. So, Stephen, what, again, specifically concerns you about what's going on within the RCMP? What needs to be addressed? And you know I've had many conversations with women in the RCMP who found themselves on the receiving end. They've told us many times of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and we know that the uh, the, the class action lawsuits apparently are going to be settled by the federal government. So, so what, is, what is it that concerns you about what's going on? Well, I think uh, much, much like I wrote in that same email, I mean, this the issues that concern me have been described um, over the last decade in 15 different reviews to the force. You know, and then out of those 15 different reviews, you know, there have been 200 recommendations made from those for reform, and unfortunately, few of those have been implemented. You know, it was, and it all dealt with, I mean, you look at that, com- the, rev- the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission review done as asked by Ralph Goodale to do this review, and they presented their findings of the review this year, you know? And there's decades of RCMP that we have struggled with bullying, uh, workplace harassment, sexual assault, and, you know, intimidation. These, these are the factors that still exist. Fifteen different reviews have identified these over the last, you know, ten years, and nothing is being done about it. Uh, internally, our senior management is not willing to make those changes. And from what I can, this is my opinion, clearly see at this stage, you know what, the federal government is not interested in making these changes. And if they are, they're certainly not interested in making it in consultation with the employees of the organization. Um, And that includes sexual harassment. That includes, uh, you know, the whole nepotism, the corruption piece. that includes the, the lack of integrity uh, to stand up and, and own something, much like what's going on with the uh, Moncton shootings, which is another whole uh, issue.
issue in itself, but very much one that is uh, an example of what's taking place across the force. You know, the, the sexual harassment one, that sickens me, Roy. That really, really sickens me. We all understand the relationships happen in work environments, and but don't confuse that with sexual harassment. You know, we, we start off these conversations with, oh, if a woman shows up to work and is... And that's that's where it should end. You know what? A woman shows up to work. It shouldn't matter what she's dressed like. Shouldn't matter how nice she is. It shouldn't matter. Oh, if she looks at me for an extra second, or you know what? As as the OIC, it shouldn't matter if she comes up and gives me a hug at the end of the day. That doesn't give me the right to touch her breasts. That doesn't give me the right to ask her to perform sexual acts in order to advance her career or possible, um, you know. Uh, uh, get a nice assignment out of it, uh, that that just shouldn't be tolerated. But we've been doing it for so long, and like you said earlier, or others have said, this is happening, this has happened for years and generations and and uh, huge time gaps. But, you know, this has to stop. This has to stop. We are commission officers in the RCMP, and God damn it, we have to act like it. And that, and that means not sexually harassing or putting up for sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, it's just so unacceptable. Stephen, what do you want Ralph Goodale to know? I mean, why? Why I mean, you, you've sent him emails, you went to yeah. his office, you've asked to meet with the minister, you're a serving uh, inspector in the RCMP. Apparently, he doesn't want to meet with you. Yeah. That That's pretty clear. Um, what do you want to say to if he sits down with you, and I think he should, yeah. what are you going to say to the man? Well, I want Ralph to hear things from our perspective. And uh, like I say, I've got no chip in this game. I'm not looking to become the commissioner. I'm not looking for a lawsuit settlement. I don't have a lawyer. Um, so really, it's a non-threat type position. What I want him to do is hear what the membership, what I think the membership is, feels is important. You know, you want to hear from a commission officer internally who's got nothing to lose? You know what? I'll tell you the way it is. And I've actually got another commission officer recently retired who's willing to come forward with me, a man of very high value and ethics and integrity, and willing to sit there and tell Ralph Goodale, here's what's broken with the system, but not just leave it at that, but here's some suggestions we have, you know, and how it can be uh, rectified or addressed. Um, you know, we want to bring the concerns of our employees to him. Uh, but, you know, the sad part is, just like you said, he's not listening to me. The federal government is not listening to me. If it was conservatives in there, I don't know if they would even listen. Uh, the, the government acted, for example, on um, Phoenix Pay System. You're familiar with that, I assume, right? Mm -hmm, yes. You see how quick they acted to that when they realized they were being affected by it? Uh, they immediately stopped that. Oh, we're not putting our pay on that. And then, you know, they were forced into acting on it for our... Uh, civilian members have put a put a freeze on that and let's let's not convert them um the prime minister the mlas the mps the individuals that enjoy the right of sitting in the senate stand up and stand up for those that stand up for you our people are out there protecting them we are working day and night and ensuring that canadians stay safe for god darn sake you know stand up as a politician and stand up for those who stand up for you. It would be it would be appropriate for Mr. Goodale to to meet with you. I think it would also be appropriate for for your colleagues to be there with you. Oh, absolutely, 
absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, a lot of the current serving ones are, are scared. They're caught in a system that if yeah. they speak up, they're going to be penalized. Like we say, who knows what's going to happen today? They could nail me to a cross, quarter me, or do whatever. But no, I they're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little extreme. I'm sorry, but uh, no, no, I'm just saying. Day, I'm just saying. There's a lot of Canadians who would be saying, "No, you don't." <laughs> yeah. At the end, at the end of today, you know what? Or at the end of this week. The overall goal is to get someone to listen. You know, Stephen, there, I, I've seen this before where one person says enough is enough. I, I, I've seen enough. I've heard enough. Uh, it's a great organization, but things have to change. Yeah. And it's, it's always one person who gets up and says it. One person who has the testicular courage to get up and say what needs to be said. And then eventually... You sometimes see, not always, but you sometimes see other people stand up and say, yeah, 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 absolutely, I agree. And out of that can start a significant movement and a significant improvement of a situation. Nobody knows how it all turns out. But if no one steps up and if no one – we've heard so many issues that – particularly with women in the RCMP, and I can go back to 1980 and find a newspaper or or magazine uh, story where MPs in Parliament were arguing about sexual harassment of RCMP women in 1980. Here we are in 2017. Um, So if nobody stands up, nothing's going to change. You're standing up. You're asking the federal public safety minister to meet with you. You're in Regina. He's in Regina. What are you doing next Friday afternoon, Mr. Goodell, that's so important that you can't meet with Inspector Glode? I like that, you know, Roy, and I hope a lot of other people ask that question. Yeah, absolutely. But like you say, in particular, as, as commissioned officers, we wear a white shirt, which we're supposed to wear with pride yeah. as leaders. But you know what? It's time we start leading, yeah. leading our people. And uh, if we all band together, or the majority of the inspectors and the supers, superintendents band together, you know what? Somebody's got to start listening to us. But fear Fear of why re- women don't speak out when they're sexually harassed. Fear of yeah. why people don't speak out when they know something's wrong. I mean, we're police officers. We're in the National Police Force. Inspector, I have literally 15 seconds. So okay. it's next Friday, Yep. 2 o'clock Saskatchewan time. 2 o'clock Saskatchewan time. In front, in front of Minister Goodale's office. Yes. Yes. We'll, t- we'll, we'll, talk to, we'll talk to you next weekend and find out how things went. <laughs> you got it, buddy. All Thank right. you so much. Take good care, Inspector Glode. All okay, the best to you. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stephen Glode, Inspector in the RCMP. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.